0: Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate
1: the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Oh, hushed October morning mild, thy leaves have ripened to the fall. Tomorrow's wind, if it be wild, should waste them all. The crowds above the forest call, tomorrow they may form and go. Oh, hushed October morning mild, Begin the hours of this day slow. Make the day seem to us less brief, Hearts not averse to being beguiled. Beguile us in the way you know. Release one leaf at break of day. At noon release another leaf, One from our trees, one far away. Retard the sun with gentle mist, Enchant the land with amethyst. Slow, slow, for the grapes' sake, If they were all, Whose leaves already are burnt with frost, Whose clustered fruit must else be lost, for the grapes' sake, along the wall.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Robert Frost podcast. My name is Mike McGinnis, and with me, as always, is my co-host Ken Gagney. How are you today, Ken?
1: I am fine, and happy to welcome you <laughs> to a gentle October in our third year of Open Apple.
2: Ah, it's crazy. We've been doing this for almost four years now.
1: It is crazy. We have no right to have been on the air for this long.
2: Thanks to all the fans and listeners and people who seem to enjoy listening as much as we do making this thing.
1: Yes, and we want to hear from you, and we have a new method by which to do so.
2: Tell them all about it, Ken.
1: Well, as always, you can email us at podcast at open-apple.net. We're happy to accept your feedback, respond to it via email, and read your emails aloud on the air. But now you can communicate with us via the same medium, by which we are communicating with you. When you go to open-apple.net in your web browser, there's a new button on the right side that says send voicemail. You click that button, and if your computer has an inbuilt mic, it'll pop up a little box, and you can immediately start recording a message that will be sent to us. You'll have the opportunity to review your audio before you submit it, and we will either respond to you immediately, or we will play your message on the air on our next episode and respond to you there. Woo! Yeah, we think this will be a lot easier for people because you don't have to remember a Google voice number. You don't have to click an email link and start typing. And it's just a little bit more parity with how the medium of the podcast works.
2: Sure, and if there's any part of it that you don't want us to play on the air, just let us know when you leave your message, and we'll be sure to excise that section of the audio before we air it.
1: Absolutely. We do respect your confidentiality. You know, Feel free to say your name and where you're from. And if you want that information held in confidence, just
2: let us know. Uh, so sounds great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what we got. <laughs> Literally.
1: <laughs> so what's new with you, Mike?
2: Well, things are a little bit uh, tense around here. Uh, the government obviously shut down last week and shows no sign of uh, getting back to work anytime soon, which means that I'm furloughed. To make things more frustrating, I can't get another job until they solve this issue. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, sit back and enjoy this podcast with you and not think about that for a couple of hours. Ken, how are you?
1: So does this mean that you have all the spare time in the world to work on your retro computing projects?
2: Yes, I'm afraid it does.
1: And how are you spending that time?
2: I'm ignoring the retro computing projects. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I have always found it easier to be motivated to get things done when your time is limited, when you're coming home from work and you've had a consistent energy level all day and you carry that over into your personal projects.
2: I agree. and in, in fact, I'm having to conscientiously make sure that I keep up a detailed schedule uh, and reminders and everything um, because otherwise I just end up not doing what it was that I thought I was going to do and surfing Tumblr or Facebook or whatever and, and wasting the day. So...
1: Facebook and Tumblr, you're not one for Reddit?
2: I dislike Reddit intensely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Are the reasons for that appropriate for this podcast?
2: I just don't like the interface. I think it's ugly and it's hard to find anything and it's a mess.
1: Fair enough. I've tried looking for stuff on there. I mean, I, do, I have no problem if somebody links me to a specific content. I can spend anywhere from a minute to a half an hour reading all the comments on that one page. But to actually go looking for something or to subscribe to a subreddit, uh, that's not something I do either.
2: Right, yeah, if somebody, yeah, like you said, if somebody will, if somebody sends me a link, sure, I'll, I'll be happy to go check it out, but I'm not going to spend the day trying to browse around that thing.
1: Good. You have better things to do anyway.
2: You're right, I do. (laughs) Like, ignore my retro computing projects. Eh, there's that. Uh, how are things out east?
1: Things are good. Uh, our government is shut down, but I do not work for them. I have many jobs and none of them are for them. Oh, good. I've been doing a lot of fall cleaning around here. I have boxes and upon boxes of junk that I've collected over fifteen years and I just keep moving from apartment to apartment. I finally decided to go through it all and see what's there and there's a lot of stuff that it's not surprising. I knew I had this stuff. I just hadn't seen it in years and so I hadn't been thinking about what to do with it and now that I'm finding it, I'm like, Oh, I know what to do with that. Sounds like fun. Yeah, I found a couple of old CDs, some of which I'm mailing to the International Center for the History of Electronic Gaming at the Strong Museum in Rochester, some of which are going to Jason Scott. I found some off-brand MP3 players that I put on eBay. I found a Lance GS Ethernet card, which is being sent to an Apple II programmer who knows what to do with it.
2: You just happen to have one of those lying around in the closet that you forgot about?
1: Well, I didn't forget about it. I knew I had two of them. I just didn't know one of them was in this box I was going through. Ah, uh, okay. I bought these back when they were new, and I never used either one because we didn't really have easy access to broadband back then. I just bought it as sort of a insurance. And then by the time easy broadband access was available, the Uthernet card was available and was, by all accounts, a superior product to the Lance GS, so I've never actually used this card.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it's good that you found another home for it then.
1: Yeah, I'm going to keep one as a backup, but I have another one to send to this gentleman. Let's see. I found a 7-CD disc changer which I posted a message on Facebook and CSA2 to try to get rid of. This was given to me by a CompuServe sysop back in the 90s. He did not have a SCSI interface, so he gave it to me because he knew I had an Apple II. And I never actually got it working on the Apple II, but I did very briefly back in the day have a PC box that this was hooked up to. And just before I shipped off the disk changer, I thought maybe I should just make sure it's empty. So I plugged in the AC, not to a computer, just the power, and I opened up each slot, and out of the seven slots, I found six old CDs. Wow, nice. Yeah, uh, one of them was uh, the SSI Volume 3 of their AD&D games. that has, like, uh, The Lost Frontier and Treasures of the Savage Frontier and games like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, good yeah, stuff. Neat,
2: yeah. I, I found that, that cleaning stuff out like that for me is a difficult prospect to think about. In other words, I I think through my the inventory in my head and, well, no, I can't get rid of any of it because I need this for this and this for that. But when I actually go through and get rid of stuff, it's a very satisfying feeling.
1: Yeah. I have a really hard time throwing anything away. Mm. But finding a new home for it, I'm very happy to do that.
2: Yep. I agree.
1: Now, you moved last year. How long did it take you before you felt settled in your new home, if you have yet?
2: Um, we're still working on that, actually. Most of the most of the place is empty. Um, and, well, not empty. It's it's livable now, and it's, it's a home, but we have a loft that's still filled with boxes that are uh, awaiting discovery.
1: I moved five months ago, and I have a room that is dedicated to half being a home office, half being storage. And I'm trying to get rid of all that storage because I want to put a twin bed in there and make it a guest room. Okay. Yeah, now I actually have a friend who is coming to visit me in November, so now that I have a deadline... If I wish to get all that done, I'm much more motivated to actually get it done. So while I'm getting rid of all this junk, some of it's going into storage in my parents' basement where I found yet another thing that I knew we had but had not thought about for years, and that was a completely unopened and unused Mac Mini. Wow, nice. Yeah, it's from December 2010. My father bought it as a backup in case his Mac ever broke down, and he never used it. And I asked him, can I grab that? And he said, sure. So now it is set up in my home office specifically as an AV station.
2: Is this one of the ones that's easy to upgrade, or is it one of the later models that they sort of lock down a little bit?
1: I believe it's locked down. It's the uh, short, thin one.
2: Okay, I think that's that's the one, yeah.
1: As opposed to the taller one that Paul Zaleski showed us how to upgrade the RAM of at Kansas Fest a couple years ago. Right. Yeah, so this is a small one. It's only got about 4 gigs of RAM, but it's got Mountain Lion, so it's my first time running Mountain Lion, really. And I'm recording this podcast on it. Very exciting.
2: Sounds great so far. Thank you.
1: So that's why I was having a little bit of trouble getting our recording started, is because I had a completely blank Mac Mini. I rather than copy anything over from my laptop, I am installing stuff anew. So I had to install Skype, Audacity, Wiretap. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I also installed Final Cut Pro, which is a little intimidating.
2: Yeah, I saw that you purchased that. I, I actually have that installed on on my MacBook Pro here, and as you said, it is overwhelming.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can see how some of it looks like iMovie, which I'm familiar with, but other parts Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to figure out, maybe to take out a book from the library.
2: That's what I did.
1: And it's still intimidating?
2: No, no, I just take it in small chunks and try to digest one little piece of the interface at a time, and doing it that way makes sense. It's not something I can sit down at a computer in 30 minutes and and pick up, but that's okay because it seems to be worth it. There's quite a lot of good stuff in Final Cut.
1: I know the terminology like events versus projects, but now Final Cut Pro introduces the term timeline, which I need to mm-hmm. get my head around. Yep. I was wondering what other people do with Mac Minis, because I was thinking I could put it in my entertainment center and somehow use it as a station, not just to edit and produce media, but also serve it up to my television. I've seen other people do that. Um, if any of the listeners have ideas for what you would do if you were given a Mac Mini, uh, go ahead and leave us voicemail or send feedback to podcast at open-apple.net. I'm pretty sure I'm committed to using it as a rendering station, but I'd like to know what else other people are doing with theirs.
2: Yeah, I'd like to hear that too. I don't I don't personally have a Mac Mini, but uh, from everything that I've seen, they can be very uh versatile toys for people who want to hack new projects. And I mean, Charles Mangan put one of those, I believe, in in an Apple IIc. c
1: Wow, I guess yeah, the new Mac Mini probably is thin enough to fit in there.
2: Yep. So, yeah, I'd love to hear what what people are doing with that.
1: But there's a reason I'm going to be rendering so much video soon. Why is that? And I'm actually taking some time off from work next month. It is the first time ever in my life that I'm taking a day off from work for video games. Wow. I've pre-ordered both the PS4 and the Xbox One, neither of which excite me, but I want to do unboxing videos, and I figure that if I use my laptop to shoot the video... And then the Mac Mini to render it, which, as you probably know, can take hours upon hours. If I divide up that work, it will allow me to shoot video on one computer while it's rendering on the other. So I'll be able to produce twice as much video.
2: Oh, Ken, let's just be honest here. You're buying them because you had money to throw away, and you didn't know what else to do with it.
1: Yes, because you know all the revenue from this podcast. I just (laughs) overflowed the savings account on my bank.
2: Yeah, it's, it's crazy how much cash we're breaking in here.
1: I know. The Apple II industry has never been better.
2: It's unbelievable. I know. Really unbelievable,
1: and now we can afford to bring on some really amazing guests on the show,
2: like the one we have today. Hi, this is Lon Simon, the Sysop of the Matrix
1: Returns BBS, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast.
2: So this month we have with us prolific Apple II uh, software developer Brendan Roberts. Brendan's current project is Lawless Legends that he's working on with uh, Seth Sternberger of Eight Bit Weapon, and of course uh, our own Martin Hay. And I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce this other name.
0: Yeah, I don't either. Um, he just uh, he just came to us uh, within a couple the last couple of weeks to help us on the Commodore port. Is This uh,
2: Bartos? Zulu? Yeah,
0: yeah, Bart. Yeah, and you know, he it seems like a really nice guy. He, he his only request for us is that we don't crucify him for his English. <laughs> um, I don't think he's heard my English yet, so maybe he shouldn't be too worried. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, he seems he seems really cool. We've had some good conversations. And actually, I think so far, I mean, he's he's not sure if he can capture exactly what Martin's been able to do so far on the Apple side, especially with the recasting. But uh, we're looking forward to see what what he can come up with, and we're um, also looking to at some cues on the the Prince of Persia Commodore sixty four port to get some ideas as to how we're going to tackle the memory management on the Commodore. But again, you know, our, our most of our focus is directed at the Apple version first.
2: Okay, well, b- before we get too much more into Lawless Legends, let's sure let's get a little background on you, Brendan. When when did you first touch, see, play with an Apple II computer?
0: <laughs> I was seven. We had just fried our second Timex Sinclair computer, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I just remember my I think my mom purchased it on my dad's credit card as a Christmas present for the family or something like that. And yeah, it it sat there in the kitchen for the remainder of my childhood. Um An Apple E, which we quickly upgraded and enhanced and all that fun stuff and pretty much shaped what I was going to wind up doing for the rest of my career, it seems, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I grew up reading Nibble magazines. That was uh, one of my Christmas presents was getting Nibble subscriptions updated every year and typing in all the listings and trying to get them to work and got most of them to work. And that's, I think when I was about 14 or 15, I finally read through enough of the stuff and decided to pick up Assembler and yeah, it just kind of went from there.
2: And isn't it gr- wasn't it a great day whenever the uh when when your nibble would show up in the mail?
0: Oh man, it was great. <laughs> I had always flip back to the back page and, and type in the one and two liners and mm-hmm. see if I could mm-hmm. get them to work. Yep, and those were the best. Yeah, you know, some of that stuff just seemed like magic to me back then.
2: So you've been using an Apple II pretty much solidly since since then, is that? Great? Oh
0: yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, in high school, around circa. 93, 94, you know, I started using a PC. Not that I liked it, but you know, I didn't have a choice if I wanted to use new software, right? And then went off to college. But ever, but then after I went off to college, you know, the emulation, you know, Apple PC had just come out, for example. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what a great piece of software that was. You know, I was finally able to kind of relive, you know, playing Ultima with the mocking board and all that stuff that I used to have. And, and then I got interested in emulation was playing with Apple Win for years and years and then decided to try it myself.
2: And that's that's what led to Jace, is that right?
0: Yeah, actually, Jace was kind of a weird one because I did Apple Game Server first and I needed to be able to test out what I was doing with Apple Game Server and I didn't really have a good test bed. So uh, Jace was originally um, designed to help me test out some of the communication stuff I was trying to pull off. You know, the high-speed 19... uh, Whatever the, the high speed communication, mm-hmm. um, that Jace uses. And, um, and then I added text mode to it. And the very first version of Apple game server had a text based menu. And then I was like, well, I got this far. Um, let's try to do high res graphics. And of course I had help from, uh, from Nick Westgate. who was awesome, you know, to help me out with the disk emulation stuff and, and other things. And it just kind of grew from there.
2: So you've got Jace and you've got the Apple game server. You're working on lawless legends. and right. Those are the ones that I remember off the top of my head, but I know that there's more that you've done.
0: Yeah. So, um, gosh, right before David Schmink did uh, the escape from homebrew computing, I had actually put together a much more terrible version of a raycaster in low res. And that was, and I think I lost the source uh, after switching computers, but yeah, I had some fisheye lens, you know, raycaster that kind of worked. And I've mm-hmm. been dabbling with it, you know, other stuff too. The other thing that, the other thing that was, uh, by, again, it started, it was in Jace before anything else, before Jace even had an emulation core, I started porting over mocking board stuff because I had this brilliant idea that I was going to do some sort of music tracker program and really unleash the power of mocking board. I still haven't finished the darn thing, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's now Jace has working mocking board support and, if you look at the source code of Jace, there's actually like a pattern editor. You can edit a pattern of uh music notes and stuff and it's not hooked up to anything. Well, so okay. yeah, it's well I've I've learned the hard way that swing is very limited in terms of what you can do in Java. And uh it's not very fun to program with. So with Lawless Legends, you know, experimenting a lot with Java effects, trying to do some new ways to to tackle these things, and I think I'm probably gonna start Trying more Java effects now that it's becoming the replacement for Swing.
2: Okay.
0: And, uh, I'm optimistic. Maybe I'll be able to get somewhere with that. We'll see.
1: So Jace is the Java Apple Computer Emulator. How does this differ from the other emulators out there, like Apple Win or Suite 16, other than the language it's written in? What, what's the difference to the end user? The difference that,
0: well, to the end user who likes to dabble in code, it's a huge difference because whereas a lot of emulators are very, very highly optimized around the, uh, the main, the main loop, as it were. Jace was designed completely object oriented from the ground up, which means that, uh, you can simulate what an apple is going to be act like if you stick an extended memory, you know, uh, like a RAM factor in every slot or a disk drive in every slot or what happens if you have multiple, you know, things. I think the only thing that doesn't work is if you try to put more than one mocking board, that doesn't work really well. Uh, which is too bad because Ultima 5 can actually sit, you know, utilize multiple mocking boards. But, uh, other than that, I mean, you can, you can fill the slots with other, whatever combination of cards you want and those will work the way they work in the machine.
1: So did uh, you have to develop modules to emulate each individual card or is that up to third? Yeah. To any plugins.
0: Uh, well, no. So it's designed to be modular. You can add your own cards and, you know, so on. You kind of look at what I did. You can, and you, and if you want to design your own cards, you can do it in one of two ways. You can either do it the firmware approach where you actually trap all the IO calls and, you know, pass it off to a firmware that runs as an emulated piece of code, much like uh, other things do. Or if you want to take it the Java way, uh, and this is how I do it for the, the block driver, the Prodos block driver that use, it, that's used for, uh, emulating disks, uh, you know, hard disks and 800K disks. There's actually no firmware. What happens is the moment the program counter goes into the firmware or where the firmware is supposed to be on the card, there's a little Java listener that gets fired off and it's like, Oh, haha, you're requesting a block. Okay. Let's go shove that in memory and return right away. So as far as the CPU is concerned in the emulator, it just gets an RTS opcode right away. And all of a sudden there's something in memory. So it's kind of like direct memory access, you know, on steroids. So that's. Kind of a fun thing. And it, and it helps you do some some fun things like, you know, how do we accelerate certain things that would otherwise be slow? There's other little tweaks in there. Like the moment that you walk into the the I.O. registers of the disk, you can uh, accelerate the emulator until the disk drive motor is turned off. It'll just unclock the emulator and let it run at full speed. Uh, same thing for RAM factor because RAM factor gets a little kind of slow with memory copy. But if you unlock the emulator speed completely, just automatically... Um and there's there's little tweaks and options buried in there to to let these things uh, occur which I think it's kind of fun because you can simulate what is an apple like if if you didn't have this uh this bottleneck of I.O. and stuff.
1: And what about Apple Game Server? We previously interviewed Egan Ford who did Apple Game Server online. What's the connection? What's the difference? So yeah, Egan actually
0: he reached out to me before he uh He's like, hey, can I use the logo? I was like, oh yeah, sure. Uh, what are you doing? And then I saw what he was doing, and I saw his. Uh, and I think what he's doing, especially with the um, with his compression tr- tricks, uh, just amazing what he can you know pull out. I mean, if we could do the same kind of thing that Egan Ford did, you know, loading cas- things over cassette at dis- insanely high rate on something like a Commodore, which takes like five minutes to load a game, if you can imagine that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that'd be great. So Apple Game Servers whole. Premise was uh, very much like ADT Pro, only ADT Pro lets you transfer a disk, whereas Apple Game Server lets you load a single load game directly into RAM and just start executing it without a disk. So the difference is really more what do you do if you don't have a disk drive but you want to play a game? There's also kind of, and it's kind of like a VS drive sort of thing where if you have a DOS 3.3 disk, uh, like ChipWits, for example, uses the DOS 3.3 RWTS. Arcade Boot Camp is another one. You can actually run one of those games within Apple Game Server, and it replaces the RWTS with its own serial routine, which is not very fast or optimized, but does kind of work, you know, at least for read, not for write operations. I never, I don't think I ever really finished it, but it at least gives you a flavor of, hey, I can play this game over serial port, and how does that feel? It's kind of fun. So yeah, Egan, Egan wanted to do the same thing, only what do you do if you don't even have a serial card? and i thought that was a pretty uh, nice touch
1: now i i know you primarily through your many postings on csa2 where you go by the name is it blurry yeah that
0: started when i was um still bbsing on the apple um god it's, it's not very exciting of a handle it's just my initials really <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's why
0: that's why it's capitalized all funny the blr are my initials so okay um i guess it, it sounded a lot cooler when i was you know 14 or something but <laughs> i just I just, I, I kept it only because it's easier for people that might have remembered me from BBS days or whatever to be able to find me again under that handle. And I released a bunch of music on it, um you know, in, in Amiga mod format and stuff. So I thought it's easier just to keep a consistent handle rather than, you know, shifting names and people can't find me anymore.
1: Sometimes the odd capitalization causes me to read it as Blu-ray. Yeah. Well, I mean, it predates Blu-ray. Um <laughs> you know. Yeah, by a, just a little bit. Just a little bit it predates
0: dvd too um, <laughs> yes and i think i, I use bad visions as an alternative just kind of a play on blurry and that's why you see the lawless legend stuff is registered under um there is a blurry account that's already registered in github by somebody who doesn't even use it yeah I just kind of pick something similar
2: so i guess that brings us to lawless legends uh how did you get involved with with that project
0: Yeah, as you know, Seth is really active on Facebook as uh, 8-bit weapon that he does with his wife, Michelle. Yeah, I kind of follow like, you know, Nerdcore and other stuff like that online and, and saw 8-bit weapon, kind of listened to some stuff, so that's kind of cool. Followed him on Facebook and then he started posting stuff that, uh, he was trying, I think it was originally he wanted to, um, get an Apple version of an image converted. And as you know, with uh, Apple Game Server, I already have code to do that. So I was like, yeah, sure. You know, hey, I'll convert this image for you. That's cool. And then um, he started posting, I think it was either CSA2 or Facebook, but he started posting about this Lawless Legends or he, he wanted someone to help him do a retro game. And, you know, I'd seen some stuff that was done. I think there's a retro game that would seen someone else do in that community. And I thought, oh, that'd be kind of fun. Let's see. I mean, at least I was originally thinking maybe I'd just steer him in the right direction or help find some people for it to help him out. And then I wound up being like a guy... You know, working directly with him instead. And that, that was actually cool. And, uh, turned out that we both had a lot of great ideas that turned into a really healthy collaboration and just, you know, Martin jumped on board and it's just been rolling. I mean, we've kind of slowed down in the last month. I just got a new job, but, um,
1: yeah, we've been having a lot of fun with it. So, Seth Sternberger of 8-Bit Weapon brought the group together. Uh, what is the division of labor between him, you, and Martin Hay? And we know the other gentleman is doing the C64 stuff. So, what are you three doing with the Apple II?
0: Seth has a lot of great ideas. So, he's definitely the creative owner of the story and the plot. And he's done a lot of the art so far. Martin, as you know, is a very, very talented Apple coder. So far, Martin's done a lot of the uh, Raycaster He's written all of our initial build scripts and uh, and um, what I've done so far is made the Outlaw Editor, which Outlaw Editor being a play on the Lawless Legends title. And Outlaw Editor is a Java app you can launch on anything that um, allows you to edit graphics, be they little tiles, maps, and so on. So I created the editor, fed that over to Seth. Seth has taken the editor, built creative assets for the game with that. Um, and right now it's just test data, but um, you know, and then we feed that over to Martin, who um was actually starting to put together this great little series talking about the blue pixel and it traces the uh, origin of the blue pixel from how it's created as a graphic art to how it's you know gone through all this mit map mapping conversion he does and uh and then eventually raycast onto the screen that you see when you're running around the three d raycaster so that's where we're at so far, but uh we're always looking for more people. We set, we have so much more left to do that, you know, and all these great ideas and only so much time. <laughs> what particular skill sets are you looking for? Oh, anything. I mean, anybody who's willing, like, you know, Seth isn't a coder, but he's, he's pretty active with his ideas and whatnot. But I mean, anybody who wants to just fire up a disk image and test it, you know, we're going to be having test builds soon. Hmm. Um, not of a whole game, but, you know, little bits and pieces here and there that Pe- people can fire it off. and are like, uh, I was able to run through a wall. You know, that's kind of good to know. Or I went to this part in the map and then the whole thing crashed. Well, again, good to know. You know, QA testing uh, should never be overlooked. Um, And then anyone who actually wants to dabble in code or wants a reason to learn assembly, jump on board. We have already got the uh, procedure in in place to take all of the assembler that's checked into Bitbucket uh, to GitHub, check it out, build a disk image, and then you just double-click it to fire it up in an emulator. So you don't really have to
1: know much about anything, you just have to kind of want to learn. So this is an 8-bit RPG set in America's old West, inspired Correct. by games like Ultima and Wasteland. Do you think the success that Wasteland 2 on Kickstarter had inspired any of this? Um I'm not sure. Um I and mean, Seth lives out in
0: California. I'm not sure where his I know that he really loves the original Wasteland. I know we talked about that quite a bit. So I don't know if The Wasteland 2 really prompted it so much as that yeah. Seth just had this idea that he wanted to do. Yeah, I'm not sure where the original inspiration came from. Although I know that a lot of our continuing inspiration for it is um, based around yes. things that we like about the old games and things that we don't like, such as experience grinding and so on.
1: And when can we expect to see Lawless Legend as a final product? Oh, I don't know if we have a timeline yet. Since we're, all,
0: we're just doing it for fun, it's kind of hard to commit an exact date. It was my day job. We would have already had a beta test build by now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love for it to be a higher priority, but I've got so much going on that, you know, I just donate time when I can. And I know Martin's the same way. The more people we get involved, the faster it will be done. And so far we're having fun.
1: And if I may ask, um, by the way, congratulations on your new job. What is it you're doing now? Funny enough, same thing i have been doing for the last
0: decade, but just for a different company. So I've, I've been doing, a, uh, um, an architect at Adobe. And I implement websites using their software. It's a lot of fun. Good stuff.
1: Now I know plenty of people who are architects, but I think you're using that word in a different term. You're not building buildings.
0: No, I I am not building buildings. Um no, software architect, right? Which is I guess another title for a consultant. You know, only I think the difference is that rather than being just a consultant that slaps out code, um I'm more of the um solution architect that helps you piece things together and in hopes of them not falling apart or okay. you know find, leveraging the best features of the available software that's that's present you know and and so on so it's a little bit more than like say a systems engineer or a systems architect that just works um you know at, at a desk and doesn't inf- interface with customers i have to go into customer environments quickly assess what they've got and what they're trying to do and how it meets their needs and then and then put on the beanie cap and do the technical thing
1: I'm sure that's a common term. I've just never actually worked in a software development house and I don't consider myself to be a coder. So every now and then I bump into a, like a term that I'm unfamiliar with and software architect would be one. If you had said software engineer, I would have known that, but I understand now that that's a slightly different specialty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I have a lot of respect for what software engineers do because I think in a lot of ways they have a much greater attention to detail than I do when it comes to writing code and, and so on.
1: See, do you have any projects you're working on now for the Apple II? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry, obviously, besides Wallace Legends.
0: <laughs> well, I think I am going to flip back to Jace, um, time permitting, because now that I have a MacBook, um, I'm no longer using a Linux as my primary uh, desktop environment. And now I know why people complained about Jace so much, why they couldn't use it. I'm like, whoa, there's there's no keys. Where are the rest of the keys? Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I've got to work on keyboard mapping before I can even use my own emulator again. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, that, that's gonna be probably my next focus when I have some time. Other than that, I mean, I think that I have some other fun ideas. It would, I, in order to build, I mean, right now my, my focus is, what are the tools I need to make a game possible? Even if I don't finish the game, what are the tools that I would need? If nothing else, we wind up with a great set of tools that people can use for whatever nefarious purposes they have. Um, it would be great and awesome to have some sort of tracker program to uh, utilize the most out of the mocking board. It'd be, you know, it would be great to have image conversion utilities that would get the most out of high res. Oh wait, we have that. That's an outlaw editor, you know, and other things that uh, other folks have done, like Bill Buckles has done some great work like on that too, you know, but um, some, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to make sure there's a synergy of what I build versus what I need. And if, uh, if anything else, if we wind up with great tools along the way, then that's great.
1: Now I know you're doing a lot of collaboration with other people and is it GitHub that you're using to do Lawless Legend? Uh yeah. Yeah, we use GitHub for this one. Um and and the reason why we
0: decided to go open source is that uh I wanted people to feel like you know they weren't making any sort of commitment, any especially for obligation or anything that if, if somebody said, "You know what, I don't really want to be part of your team, but I like this code or I think I could fix it. I'm going to go fork it, do my own thing." That's great. It's Apache licensed, you know, which means you can do whatever you want. You can even do something and make a commercial game like Zephyr that came out recently, you know. You could you could make a Zephyr or something using these tools to do graphics design or something. And that's fine. It's Apache licensed, you know. Mm-hmm. IBM sells a version of Apache that's um, free of any royalty to the Apache developers and that works out fine. Um I think the the only thing is at some point we've had to decide you know, where do we go? You know, so now we have this open source engine we have these open source tools. Where do we go commercial? And I don't think we've really had that conversation internally yet. It's imminent, you know, but Apache licensing keeps things open so that we can, we can have that conversation and not feel overly constrained later.
1: Would your job be easier if you had some sort of a uh, version control system client for the Apple II? You know, we would actually, and that was actually,
0: uh, there were a few developers who, who swore that they would not, contribute unless they could um code on the apple 2 bare metal and wow yeah i i think you know i think i can understand that, that in order to really feel like you're doing the thing with the apple 2 that you've got to be coding directly on the machine and i get that um but ultimately we looked into what does it take to synchronize between the apple 2 and your desktop computer and and that's that's doable using apple commander and other stuff but it certainly adds a lot of process um and then, and then we've got to ultimately synchronize the code on GitHub. So Martin and I, um, you know, came up with a plan. And right now what we do is we check in our code to GitHub. All of that synchronization happens through GitHub and it works great. It's very simple. It stops you from stepping on each other. You can review things. You can re- look at what people are checking in. You can comment on it. It's, it's nice. You know, it's very simple. And then you pull out the code, run a script, and then you wind up with a disk image that you can go and, and, and execute. So. You know, you don't have to do a whole lot. We're trying to, the, the repeatability of it is such that we're trying to bring people in and not push them away from having some overly complicated process. You know, we want to simplify it, lower the bar as much as possible so that people aren't feeling constrained or, um, or intimidated by a complex tool set. I mean, we're using CC65, you know, mostly for its assembler right now, but maybe we'll have some C, I don't know. But uh, you know, with CA sixty five, which is easily obtainable and very portable across platforms, I think it simplifies a lot of things. You know, for what we need. I mean, I know a lot of other people are using CA sixty five, so we tried to pick something that was familiar.
1: This is a very ambitious project on all levels, and not just the end product, but even just the production methods.
0: It is. Well, and, and you know what? And if it all falls apart or it doesn't get all the way finished, then we have some repeatable processes people can take and put into their own projects. So nothing is a waste, you know, you know, it's, you think of it from like a recycling perspective. There's so much that we've done already that if other people wanted to kind of pick up that torch and and run with it in their own projects, then that gets them so far, you know, that gives them so much momentum off the starting line that they don't have to reinvent all this stuff. Um, Then I'm, I mean, that's why I was all in for it. That's what really excited me about the prospect of this is that, It's not an all or nothing. It's, you know, we've already gained so much that even if we don't finish it in this form, we have so many things we can use for other stuff. It's just, uh, it's all a win-win. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing the fruits of your labors. Uh, we do too. (laughs) I did send you guys a disk image and I don't know if you got it before the call, but, uh, you know, there was a demo of, uh, Martin's Raycaster that I sent a disk, uh, to you.
1: Yeah, I got the disc image. I haven't gotten to play with it yet. I think he briefly showed it to us at Kansas Fest when he demoed the game. He did. The WAs saw it. I mean, that's pretty awesome, right? I know, really. I mean, you can't hope for a better audience than that.
0: No, no, you really can't.
1: (laughs) And I I really particularly like that the WAs
0: picked up that uh, Outlaw Editor does all the NTSC emulation of color and everything. Because it, it it has the Jace video code ripped out. And Jace does NTSC artifact. You know, it's the only way we could have, you know, said this is going to give you the best emulation for high res because you're going to see what it looks like while you're working on it. And the WAS noticed that, and I thought that was particularly cool because I know that the you know, the video aspects of the Apple II were one of the things the Woz was most proud of. You know, mm-hmm. so I thought that was pretty neat that he saw that one and he picked that up pretty quick. And-
1: well, if anybody's going to pick it up, it's the WAS. God, I hope so. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm lost.
0: (laughs) Get what's new and exciting in retrocomputing with 2 News.
1: Just to mix things up, let's start this month's news section with games. Let's talk about Blocks of Destruction, which is a game I played in early September at MIT at the second annual Boston Festival of Indie Games, or Boston Fig. There was an article in the Boston Globe about this event where local game developers who don't have big funding or big publishers are nonetheless putting forth their latest games for Mac, Windows, Xbox, PlayStation, iOS, and Android, and etc. And one of the games that the Boston Globe was looking forward to is called Blocks of Destruction. And I look, took one look at it and I thought, wow, what a blatant ripoff of Martin Hay and his structurist game." Because in Blocks of Destruction, you play a little guy inside a Tetris well trying to avoid getting crushed. Sound familiar, guys?
2: Those jerks. <laughs> yeah, how dare they?
1: <laughs> well, it would be rather bold of me to say that they actually ripped him off, even though I actually just said that. There are there are no new ideas under the sun, and the odds of them playing an Apple II game and adapting it for a modern PC was pretty unlikely. Uh, but still, I, I kind of wish that Martin Hay got an article in the Boston Globe looking forward to his game, although he did get a nice review in Retro Gamer Magazine and in yes. Uh Once I got my hands on Block of Destruction, turns out they're nothing alike. Blocks of Destruction, for one, uses a Virtual Boy-esque color scheme. It's all black and red. And secondly, it's a two-player game. One person's controlling the blocks, the other person's controlling the guy in the well. Uh, thirdly, the blocks are not traditional tetraminos. They're quite irregularly shaped. And fourth of all, the guy or the player controlling the guy in the well is actually playing from an over-the-shoulder perspective. It's not a 2D look at the well like you'd normally get in Tetris. You're actually seeing the guy running around and jumping, almost from his own perspective, which is a little disorienting, because the Tetris field is not very deep. It's one block deep. Uh, But anyway, interesting game. It's going to be coming out soon, I think. There will be a link to where you can find the game in the show notes, if you want to see a video or something. And then I wrote a brief blog about it for Computer World. So, Structurus lives on.
2: So there's no deep conspiracy they didn't hack into Martin's Apple II and steal his code?
1: Given that Structurus is open source, I don't think any hacking would be necessary. If they did use Martin's
0: code, then they would have at least had 16 colors.
1: Right, instead of just black and red. I uh, Playing that game, I felt like I was a Terminator or something. Either of you Structurus fans?
0: Um, I played it. it. It was pretty fun. I thought it was a pretty fresh take on the whole genre. Second only to uh, first-person Tetris, which is very dizzying and disorienting. and You can find that one online.
1: Oh, I think I've heard of that, but I've never played it.
0: Yeah, it's web-based, so you basically see everything from the perspective of the piece. So instead of the piece rotating, the whole game field rotates. And it's yeah, you get pretty dizzy really quick.
1: Yeah, that would be confusing. <laughs> there was a Tetris game for the Virtual Boy where you're looking down into a well, and the piece recedes from you as you drop it. But you're not actually the block itself. And then there is Not Tetris, which is downloadable for Mac and Windows, where it's just like the old Game Boy Tetris that Woz loves to play, except it has real-world physics. Oh wow! So like when you rotate the piece, it keeps spinning, and not necessarily at 90-degree angles. And when you and when you drop the piece, like the whole well shudders as it shifts with the new weight of the block.
0: It doesn't sound very winnable. It's almost about as bad as Bastet, which is a command line uh, something I saw on Linux. I'm sure it's another platform. But so Bastet was designed to give you the least possible usable piece at any particular point. So <laughs> tell you, so instead of having the little box that says, "Here's your next piece," it says, "This is the piece you really want that you're not getting."
1: And it gives you like, "It's awful." Oh my gosh, I have to try that. I have to like, I have to give it to my friends and not tell them that this is the bastard form of Tetris. Like, oh here, play a game. I love it.
0: They'll hate you for it, but yeah, do it. Uh, I, I recommend YouTubing their reaction.
1: Ooh, you know, I could put that on my YouTube channel, which is all game-oriented. <laughs> Excellent, I just found my next million hits. Thanks. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on to... Maybe we should have talked about this right after Lawless Legends, because we have an RPG on the agenda this evening. And that would be Ultima Four. I think this was... Uh, Wayne Artherton put this on Facebook, Andrew Rowan put it on the Kansas Fest list, it's been all around. There is a free iOS version of Ultima 4, which was released for the uh, original Nintendo as Ultima 2, I believe. Uh, this game is the Commodore 64 version, and from my understanding, it is not an official or licensed port. It's just something that somebody else wrote from scratch and has now made available on iOS for free. Is that anybody else's understanding? Am I right on that?
0: You know, are you sure we, that they didn't just slap a C64 emulator to a Ultima 4 ROM? seems kind of, I don't know. My only, you know, my, my only complaint about somebody using a C64 port as a base is that the SID music in this in the uh, C64 Ultima ports is nowhere on par with the board music on the Apple versions. And that's not to say that I have anything against SID, because uh, I've heard some great, outstanding stuff on SID, but whoever did the SID, Adaptations just really didn't utilize the full potential of that chip, and and it really sounds like it, you know. Oh, that's too so, bad. Yeah, I I I think so. But I mean, if you listen to Ultima Four soundtrack on mock- Mockingboard, there's just a lot more there's a lot more sonic texture to it.
1: Hmm. Well, there is another version of Ultima Four that you can download for free, and this one is legal and licensed, and you can get it from Good Old Games or GOG.com. That site as a service was discussed thoroughly on a recent episode of the Retro Computing Roundtable, number 57. And uh, I don't think this is a limited time offer. You can download Ultima 4 whenever you want. And I suspect it's probably the Windows version. Uh, it's not quite as portable as the iOS version, but it is a little bit more authentic, I think.
2: According to PocketTactics.com, the iOS version is actually... Uh, looks like it's legit. EA released it as part of their cross-promotion for the uh, upcoming Ultima Forever yeah, they're calling Ultima Forever EA's freemium butchery of the of Richard Garrett's seminal RPG series.
0: Oh for crying out loud.
2: But as part of that, you get the C64 version of Ultima 4 for free for iOS.
0: I don't suppose Richard Garrett's going to get any royalty for that is he?
2: Oh no, no, he's <laughs> oh, okay. I'm I'm sure that he's he and EA burned their bridges a long time ago and I don't think he's shown any interest in going back to that.
0: Yeah, well, I think yeah, I think Shroud of the Avatar definitely shows you how burnt that bridge is.
2: It looks like you're right, Mike. I pulled up the
1: Ultima 4 app in the iTunes store, and it says, Seller is Elite Systems. I don't know who or what that is or how it's related to Electronic Arts, but then it does say underneath that, Copyright 1986-2013 Electronic Arts Incorporated. So I guess they did release this.
2: I would assume that company is the, is the development house that EA contracted to write the iOS mm-hmm. version.
1: Well, if I don't want to play my games on mobile devices or emulate it on a computer, I can always go old school and play them on the originals, and there's a new place to do that in Boston. It is the Digital Den. It is a purported retrocomputing museum uh, that is opening up, and this was a, is being established by Northeastern lecturer Mary Hopper, who has been collecting old computers and computer paraphernalia ever since the Computer History Museum moved from Boston to Mountain View about 15 years ago. She finally realized that there is going to be no other museum opening to take its place, so she's trying to do it on her own. I don't know how successful she's going to be. I haven't been to the venue myself. I've seen a few videos and it looks pretty small, more like a storage unit than a museum. And she did run a Indiegogo fundraising campaign for $25,000 and raised just a fraction of that. I think somewhere between 1000 thousand and five thousand. and 5000 Since it was Indiegogo and not Kickstarter, she does get that amount, even though she didn't meet her goal. So she does have something to work with. Uh, but I blogged about it on Apple 2-Bits and she reached out to me and gave me some of her history about how long she's been uh, in the Cambridge area, working at MIT and the like, and making connections there with Nick Montfort. And uh my friend Dave Ross, who is on Twitter as at C64, that's the letter C, the word 60, and the number 4, he went to the Digital Den, met Miss Hopper, or Professor Hopper, and was quite impressed by both the hardware and the individuals involved with the program. There is some sort of an open house or launch party coming up on October 20th, to which I'm invited. I will be attending that and reporting back on uh, what I hope will be a new establishment in the Boston area. Do either of you have any sort of classic computer archives in your backyards?
0: I don't know if it's in every town, but the local Goodwill here in Austin always uh, seems to collect stuff that comes through their donation piles, and they they have a a free little uh, Goodwill computer museum. And it always has apples on display, but it also has other things like, uh, Timex Sinclairs and Trash 80s and, um, they even have part of a Cray system. They have a relay computer that was, that they just made as a pro- someone made as a project and created a fully working relay computer that's actually functional. I think they do events there too every now and then. It's just a little tiny room, just a little bigger, bigger than maybe a couple of garages, but, I mean, they, you know, they curate this stuff pretty nicely and they have a rotating exhibit, which is pretty cool. So anyone that's near the Austin area should check that
1: out for Grenz. You never know what you'll see there. So this is more than just the usual $1 or $5 computers that are for sale at Goodwill. This is an actual display.
0: Yeah, no, they actually um, if they have like an Amiga that comes through then they'll actually you know, pick it up and see if they can get it working and put it in their uh, their rotating exhibit. They had some uh, actual mock-ups like actual physical mock-ups for the original Game Boy. So you see like this it's like a stone slate ver- or a clay slate version of a Game Boy that was actually used as a prototype mock-up. Huh. And so they have all kinds of interesting stuff in there every now and
1: then. Brendan, you mentioned being in Austin. Isn't that also where Rooster Teeth is headquartered?
0: Yeah. Oh, no, there's a whole bunch of uh, studios here, a lot of interesting ones. Huh. Like Retro Studios is here in Austin. Those are the people that did Donkey Kong Country kind of Returns. And Zygna has a big office here, not too far away from my house, Actually.
1: Oh, the guy's responsible for Farmville.
0: Yeah, it was Zynga or Zynga. Zynga. I don't know how you pronounce it. Zynga. Yeah, yeah. because
1: I just Mm -hmm. wrote a blog post about how Steve Chiang, formerly of Dual which we discussed on this show a while back, he used to run, I think DreamWorks was the Apple II studio with Jason Anderson, who went on to form Tiburon. And Steve Chiang is now president of games at Zynga. No, I'm sorry. Ion Storm was was in Dallas. Uh, but that's, I think that's where John Romero had his huge Apple II reunion gathering of all these old school programmers and developers maybe like a decade ago. Cool. Well, you are in quite the hub of, uh, gaming and Apple II stuff.
0: Austin's a very interesting area. I remember when I came here in 95 for school and then I graduated. It's just, it's changed so much that, uh, it's a pretty exciting place.
1: Uh, have you ever been to the VCF in Arlington?
0: I have not. I have not. I have driven past the original headquarters of Origin Software, which is a stone throw from where I live, actually. And I have to say, I really, really dug how uh, Richard Garriott had that building design because I have a steep driveway going into their, uh, into their office. And you actually drive underneath this bridge between these two buildings, but it looks like you're driving into the mouth of a big building. <laughs> and I always thought it looked very foreboding. And that building is still there, although I know that, you know, obviously Richard Garrett doesn't own it anymore. But uh...
1: That is awesome. Is that the same house that Richard Garrett owned, which we talked about on this show about a year ago, about how he was selling it?
0: Yeah, he, well, he's selling that mansion, but he still owns all this property. And actually, um, there's a theater on the grounds of his property, and it's, it's actually like a scale version of the uh, Globe Theater. You can actually go see Shakespeare plays and <laughs> stuff. They sell tickets. The Baron's Men—I think is the name of the troop that that he sponsors—and it's just—it's—it's it's a fantastic venue. And then he has all these private events and stuff that he throws
1: there. I mean, they're just crazy parties. And you go to all of them, I'm sure.
0: No, I don't actually. Um, I'm kind of lame. <laughs> uh, I've been to some of the plays, and I've actually volunteered because my sons have actually volunteered to homeschool. But uh, you know, we actually volunteered to kind of help con- run concessions at a few of the plays and stuff. It's—it's it's fantastic. Very cool. I remember mean, my first experience. We were coming back from one of the productions. It was about this time last year, Halloween time, and he had some private fundraising thing that he was doing on another part of his property. And here we were leaving. Uh, we were leaving after after this performance, and it was dark outside, and there were like people camped on the sides of the roads at, dressed as zombies and actually trying to like attack our car as we were driving out of there. You know, because of the haunted house, he was doing another part of the property, but these people were like really like in character for it.
1: They escaped that region of the estate and we're attacking you now.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, I thought, it thought it was brilliant. It still has that same vibe to it that, uh, you know, we used to read about in Nibble Magazine, like the parties he used to, uh, not parties, but the haunted houses he did back in the early nineties, you know, and I think he doesn't do the haunted house thing anymore, which is too bad, but he still has the same kind of thing going on for one thing or another.
1: There's something similar going on in Massachusetts later in October. It's called the Avington Zombie Apocalypse. They have an area of space the equivalent of 25,000 square feet to simulate a city that's been overrun by zombies. And you pay admission, and you have to get from one end of the city to the other without getting attacked by the actors that they've hired to be zombies. <laughs> I have never done this before. I don't know if it's ever existed before, but I'm definitely checking it out. They give you, like, 1910-style pistols. They're just air guns, and that's what you get to shoot the zombies. But I assume you run out of bullets. And on the FAQ for the event, it says, is there touching? touchy? And they said, yes, if you let a zombie get close to you, he will bite you. I'm like, I'm "Like, wow. oh, okay. <laughs>
0: okay, then.
1: Oh, boy. So, anyway, Uh so if I'm not on the show next month, that's why.
0: Well, it was good talking to you then. Thanks, yeah, you know.
1: Well, maybe I'll be on the show with a couple of grunts and moans, and you—you know, you probably won't be able to tell the difference.
0: Yeah, we'll have another review for Lala's Legend. We'll be like, yeah, we're looking for some more brains to bring to the <laughs> brain
1: to brains. I'm your man. All right, let's see. Moving on to things that don't involve my dead body, Mike. I understand that you have uh, some news for us about a celebrity that's no longer with us.
2: Yeah, speaking of dead bodies and. Uh... Certain parts of Apple history that cannot be preserved, no matter how much how much we wish they could and how hard we try. Unfortunately, uh, Wayne Green has passed away. Do either of you know that name?
0: No, but I do know Insider.
2: I guess he co-founded or founded uh, Insider, uh, which later became part of IDG's Empire of Magazines, along with A+, um, and he died recently.
0: Wow, well, and he was also an editor of the CQ magazine, also.
2: Yeah, he did a bunch of uh, magazines... Uh, and ham radio related stuff after after he he sold Insider.
0: Wow! Oh wow! He also uh, he went on to found Byte. Yep, that's that cool. was him. That's that's pretty phenomenal.
1: Wayne Green was distantly related to me when I was working at Computer World. I'm in a professional sense because Computer World was an IDG publication, and I worked 20 feet away from Dan Muse, who. When I knew him was an editor at CIO Magazine, still is, but formally his last tour of duty at IDG was as editor-in-chief of Insider A+. So he worked directly with Wayne Green. Uh, let's see, there was a interview with Wayne Green done by Computer World back in 2008. I will have a link for that in the show notes. And Wayne himself had a blog that he kept updated from 2004 up until uh, earlier this year. Uh, he was 91 years old when he passed away, living in New Hampshire, which is where IDG Communications was based out of for publications such as Insider. He stayed close to home, and it's unfortunate that we've lost him, but he lived a good age, 91 years old, like I said, and, you know, left plenty of publications behind him, so he has a long track record by which he'll be remembered. Yeah, he's a good guy. I'm sorry I didn't get to meet him. And this, of course, comes right on the heels of Lewis Kornfeld having passed away, he of Radio Shack and the TRS-80, which we discussed on a previous episode. Thanks to listener Kurt Johnson, who originally alerted us to this passing. I saw it on Twitter and Facebook later in the day, but Kurt was the first one to let us know. I passed it along to Dan Muse, and he hadn't heard it yet. I passed it along to some other IDG employees as well who have been in the industry for a while, and they were all surprised and sad to hear of Wayne's passing. And Brennan, you said that you grew up reading Nibble. What about Insider, A Plus, Bite? Any of those? I did read Insider a little bit.
0: You know, pick up newsstand copies of them back in the day. But I think Insider wasn't around quite as long. And I think the reason why I was always drawn to the other magazines more is that uh, uh, Nibble was uh, Nibble was a little bit more consistent.
1: Yeah, I mean, I unfortunately didn't get to read much of either of them. Uh, They were a little bit before my time. I have a copy of Nibble right here in my hands, actually, that I bought. Or was given by Stavros at Kansas Fest a couple years ago. This is the June 1990 episode or issue. Insider and A+. They were, as I discovered when I interviewed Dan Muse for Juice GS last year, they had some politics that they had to struggle with because there was also MacWorld in the IDG family. That so so that limited how relevant they could stay. They saw the Apple II going away and the Mac coming as the next big thing from Apple, but they were limited in how much they could cover it. Eventually, the magazine just had to go away because they couldn't evolve into something that competed with another publication in the same company. Well, there's another magazine that is, in one form or another, alive and well, and that is Soft Talk, which was not a long-lived Apple II magazine, but a popular one, a well-read one, and its former director of marketing, Mr. Jim Sammons, is alive and well and is Creating the Soft Talk Apple Project, a living history of early Apple microcomputing. He says uh, this is the website that he has created, to all about the history of the magazine, I believe, and maybe even some scans. I think he's still kind of putting it all together. He says, my goal for this pre-launch version of the About page is to brief you as cogently as possible on the rather grand vision and goals for the Soft Talk Apple Project.
0: Yeah, I read it. It looks very detailed. So it sounds pretty exciting.
1: And is this basically an archive, kind of like how Mike Harvey did with Nibble Magazine, or is this something original?
2: This looks like an original project that he's sort of put together based on the original soft talk. He's talking about doing data mining and telling old anecdotes and stories. and So it looks like it's going to be a lot more than just a collection of scans, which I'm actually really enthused about. Excellent. There was a lot of talk for a long time on that soft talk forever facebook group about hey are we going to scan this what's the deal and so i finally messaged uh, margo comstock and said hey can i do this do you have a problem with it because obviously people want this and nobody else is doing it and she said oh great that's fine so i did one of them it was the december let's say it was december 82 and it was 400 plus pages and it took an immense amount of time and effort and i kind of I got a lot of encouraging emails, but nobody else really volunteered to do much scanning other than Paul Hagstrom, and he did some great stuff too. Uh But it never really went much further than that. So it's nice to see that, that Jim has sort of s- jumped into this and, and really kind of picked up, picked up the baton, so to speak.
1: I mean, who better than one of the original Inner Circle?
2: Yeah, no kidding. So I, I can't wait to see what this turns into.
1: Although I am surprised, based on his LinkedIn profile, it looks like, as I said, he was the director of marketing, which is a step removed from any sort of editorial content.
2: Sure, but he was, I think he probably has a closer connection to that, certainly than, to Soft Talk, certainly than I do, or maybe some of the other more regular scanners.
1: And remind me what, uh, Mar- Comstock's role was?
2: Uh, She, for a while, was married to Al Tomervick. She, I think, went by Margot Tomervick or Margot Comstock Tomervik. And they were the editors and I forget the exact titles, but they were kind of the driving force behind Soft Talk. Cool.
1: I hope that whatever Jim Sammons is doing is with their blessing.
2: She posted in the Soft Talk Forever group asking him what his intentions were about the project. and. When he told her, she seemed very enthused, so.
1: What are your intentions toward my daughter? I mean, magazine.
2: Well, that's kind of, that was kind of the tone she took. It was sort of funny.
1: But it sounds like they decided to play nice. Yes. Oh, well, cool. I'm glad to see this coming up. Here's some other magazine news Juice GS issue number 71 just shipped. That is the volume 18 issue number 3 for September 2013. Woo-hoo! Yes, indeed. Yay. <laughs> Brendan, what do you care? Uh
0: I do have an Apple two G S, so it is relevant.
1: I'm just kidding. I'm I'm just kidding. Uh yeah, this is our annual Kansas Fest issue. It has a cover story all about the event held a couple of months ago in Kansas City. We have concurrent coverage of Oz K Fest, which was held in July down in Australia. Of course I'm saying we because we not being open Apple, but we being G S, me being the editor, Mike being the what's your role
2: again? I'm a staff writer. Yes, you
1: write staffs, that's right. Thank you.
2: I, I do. Yes, I'm just a generic body to to push a pen across a piece of paper for Ken.
1: No, no, no. You you compose all the music for Juice GS. Yes. You're a staff writer. Oh I see. <laughs> staff, don't they have a cream for that? <laughs> yeah, you really should get that looked at, Mike. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So that issue was out and in the mail, and uh, I sent a copy to Mr. Randy Wigginton since we wrote about him, I thought he might like to see what we have to say about his keynote speech. And yeah, it was a lot of fun to put together. And now I'm looking forward to the December issue, which is the last issue of Juice GS this Ever. calendar this calendar year. Oh, oh man, I always had hard tech. <laughs> and then there'll be four more in 2019, or t- no, the 19th volume in 2019. <laughs>
2: well. It's good to know that you'll be publishing well into the future.
1: I mean, I do have plans for the future of Juice GS, yes, but I'm not planning that far out. <laughs> Jeez, I mean, this is the Apple II industry. Take everything day by day, or at least year by year. So that's me tuning my own horn. I'm done now. How about them CFFA three thousands, Mike? Would you happen to review for Juice GS yes, two years ago?
2: I did. Wonderful piece of hardware, and in fact, probably. Looking back over the years, other than maybe the accelerators, I'd say that this is one of the most useful pieces of Apple II hardware that's ever been made. And now you can buy them again. They're, they're back. They're available through Richard Dreher's website, the guy who designed the card. Uh, They do have a limit of two per customer again, and they tend to go really quickly. So if you're interested and you've been, you didn't decide to go in on the first two runs, now's your chance.
0: Yeah. And definitely, you know, for what he's asking, if you go on eBay, if you're lucky to find even an old one on eBay, they still go for even more than what he's asking,
1: and I think this is pretty exciting to see it come back again. And how much did those go for? Is it $100, 150
2: I think it was 149 and then if you bought the remote cable that uh, allows you to switch disk images on the fly, that was an additional $20. That's
0: such a great feature. I mean, especially if you're playing like an Ultima 5 or something, you know.
1: Now, it was actually just this summer that I finally installed the CFA 3000 that I bought about a year earlier, and it's actually pretty slick. I was really impressed. Even though I'd read what it could do, I don't think I fully grokked it until I actually saw it in action. There was one thing I was a little confused about, though, and I'm probably not going to explain this well because I don't have it in front of me, but I was trying to make a disk image onto my USB thumb drive of a hard drive partition on my computer, and I couldn't figure out like which partition I was imaging, because it wouldn't show the volume names. It was just some abstract volume number. Does that ring a bell?
2: I've seen some discussion about that on either CSA2 or the Facebook group, or maybe even Rich's forums. He does have support forums. For the cards, uh, I don't remember what the resolution was. I know that there was some question uh, about how to deal with things like, uh, like hard drive images and partition images. So if you, if you hunt around, you might find the answer. And if you, if it hasn't been posted, I'm sure Rich would be happy to help you. He's, he's great with replying to, to emails about that sort of thing.
1: And admittedly, I did not have the latest version of the firmware. As I said, this had been sh- sitting on the shelf for about a year. And I believe the firmware can only be updated from a compact flash card, not from a USB drive. Is that correct?
2: That's what I remember. Yeah. And the trick is that your compact flash card has to have a master boot record and they don't all have that. And you, you won't know that it doesn't have it until you plug it in and it doesn't work when you try to upgrade it. And you're going, well, what is going on here? And Rich then emails you and says, you need a master boot record and here's how to put one on there.
1: Ah, so it's not something I can do easily in disk utility on the Mac.
2: I, it takes a few steps, and my memory is that you have to have a Windows machine to put the the MBR on the card. I could be wrong because I don't have the documentation in front of me, but that yeah, sounds if you, familiar.
0: If he gives you the raw MBR, you should be able to put it on with the DD command, which is uh, available on Linux, and it should be available on Mac as well. Okay. I don't, I don't, know, if had, I don't know if you have to go to like Homebrew or something to get DD on Mac, but I know that that lets you copy raw sectors to cards and stuff. I've saved I've saved MBRs and other Compact Flash cards with that for uh, some Canon camera hacking I was doing.
2: It does take a little bit of effort, but, I mean, really, for those of us who have been using DOS 3.3 command lines, stuff forever, it's not really that big a deal.
1: True, but it's just an extra step. I mean, I don't have a PC, and I don't have easy access to a Compact Flash uh, reader for my laptop. You know, actually the most accessible compact flash interface device I have is the CFFA 3000. They're not exactly a popular storage format anymore.
2: Yeah, since digital cameras went to the SD card, the the compact flash cards have sort of fallen out of favor.
1: Right. Oh well, I'll get it done. I probably should have just brought a CF card to Kansas Fest and asked somebody there to do it for me.
2: That Apple IIe that was put on display at PAX... East this year?
1: Oh yeah, the one that my, uh, that Paul and Wayne and Andy and TJ and I did.
2: Right. So, can you ask me to, if I could donate some software to that uh, on actual floppies for attendees to use and play the games and, and get a feel of what it was like to use an Apple IIe. And I was able to quickly and easily use a CFFA 3000 to turn a bunch of disk images back into real floppies for that project.
1: Who knows if we would have even been able to put that together without the CFFA 3000? Just now when I listed everybody who contributed, sorry, I forgot your name. I mean, I was just thinking about no. who was. <laughs> you were here to remind me, but I was just trying to quickly think who was actually at that event. Because uh, we had a group photo taken, and I'm just thinking, I have a very visual memory. I'm like, who was there? Who was there? Mike wasn't there.
2: Next time I'll have a life-size cardboard cutout of myself made and shipped to you so that you can include it in the photo.
1: Please don't.
2: All <laughs> All right. You're no fun. Uh, more hardware news. Uh, Charles Mangan, who we interviewed last month, actually, for uh, Open Apple, uh, has announced that his retro connector joystick shield will be available this November, and he's taking pre-orders now.
0: That's pretty cool.
2: I don't actually know anything about this particular piece of hardware that he was making. Uh, Brendan or Ken, do you?
0: Yeah, so it looks like you can plug an Apple joystick into his connector shield and then use your Apple joystick from your computer as a modern um peripheral.
2: So it's it's plugging an older Apple joystick into newer hardware?
0: That's what it looks like, yeah. Okay. Looks pretty exciting.
2: I could see that um being useful if you wanted to play Load Runner in your virtual two or Apple Win and and being able to play it on a real play it with one of those plastic Mach two joysticks would be pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Oh man I love my Mach joystick. Um there's nothing like having something that's auto centered, you
1: know. Now just like his current retro connector shields for the keyboards, there are two different models, one to plug an Apple II keyboard into a Mac and one to plug a Mac keyboard into an Apple II. Charles is working on going in the other direction for the joystick, so you can plug a modern USB joystick into an Apple II. That will be a separate product. He's um, hoping that will come out in November as well, but it's a little bit more complicated piece of hardware. But altogether, he is finding it much easier to... Create products that interface the two axes of a joystick than it is the multiple keys on a keyboard. So he kind of wishes he'd done this project first. <laughs>
0: yeah, no kidding. Yeah, because I mean, especially reading the uh, two axes, you're just reading a variable resistor, and he's using a TNC, so I can see where that would be much easier for sure.
1: Have either of you used either of his current retro connector products?
0: I haven't, but I've seen the stuff that David Schmink's done with them, and it's, yeah, you know, it's pretty cool.
2: I got to play with the keyboard model that he had set up at Kansas Fest, but I did not did not spend the money to buy one myself.
1: Yeah, and as I've mentioned, I feel a little guilty about not having bought one because I said I wanted to, but my limitation is that his current products don't work on the Apple II GS, which is the one model of computer I do have. Maybe I should buy them anyway and just let them sit there, but I'd rather give him money and be able to speak authentically about how great a product it is that I bought from my own usage. And he assures me that something will be coming down the pipeline.
2: Shut up and take his money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's great that you know he has developed this niche, and even within this niche, there's just a multitude of products that he can develop. And it's really just a matter of queuing them up in the order in which he wants to produce them. You know, first he'll make the keyboard go this way, and then the keyboard will go that way, then the joystick, and then the joystick, and you know maybe he'll do mice next. And there are other models of Apple II he can add compatibility with, and. It's just so many options that he has. It's exciting to see what he's going to do next.
2: It's nice to see that he has gone from, that he sort of stepped up a little bit and filled some of the vacuum that was created. When Henry and and Anthony decided to to close up shop with Reactive Micro, and I know that this is not on the scale of the amount of product that they were offering, but it's nice to see that at least some new hardware is, is out there and available and in development.
1: Yeah, and Charles is a established manufacturer. He has his own online store through com. So he doesn't necessarily have to let one person be the hardware developer himself and then let somebody else be the retailer or marketer like Cinecom is for so many. You know, Charles is just one-stop shopping. And, you know, if some other shop decides to close up, it doesn't affect Charles. He just keeps on going. Uh, let's see. Brennan, you just sent us a link. Is that something you want to talk about?
0: Oh, well, no. So you were saying you wanted to get uh, your Apple 2GS keyboard uh, working, and I was remembering that the Apple 2GS keyboard is based on the Apple desktop bus, and it was uh, interchangeable with the old Macs uh, ADB keyboard and mice. So I think if you got a solution that worked for the old Mac keyboard and mice, it would probably work for your Apple 2GS keyboard and mice as well. That was my uh, my only contribution to that.
1: And there's a review here on CNET of a Teensy USB controller and a Gryphon ADB iMate and some other devices you can use to make these things work. I might have that Gryphon iMate around here somewhere.
0: I had not personally used those, but I would expect that that should work as expected. If Hmm. it does what it says it does.
1: Maybe I should try that out. I think I may have bought an iMate when I originally tried to get ADT Pro working. I know I saw it in my desk at Computer World, and I emptied out my desk when I quit back in January, which means somewhere in this house. But as I mentioned in the intro, I've been doing a lot of cleaning and haven't unearthed it yet, so maybe I'll find it soon. Well, good luck. Let us know how it goes. Well, thank you.
2: Be sure to carry a lantern with you or you'll be eaten by a (laughs) grue.
1: Who wants to tell us
0: about A2 Cloud? So it looks like A2 Cloud's whole goal is to be taking a Raspberry Pi and turning a Raspberry Pi into an appliance that kind of wraps together other things in the community have done with ADT Pro and, and uh, VS Drive and kind of produce something where someone can just kind of fire up the A2 Cloud image on a Raspberry Pi and just go from zero to serving up disk images. Whatever. And, and that's actually, I think, a brilliant idea because the Raspberry Pi has a nice form factor that makes it very attractive to just having a little bitty box behind your uh, Apple IIc or, or your Apple IIgs or whatever and uh, being able to to expand your storage options. And especially Apple IIc, you don't have a whole lot of options to begin with, you know. So I think this is a brilliant and or evolutionary step in what we've already been doing in the community with T Pro and slaving our... PCs or our MacBooks or whatever to the computers and now we don't have to have another computer on the desk we can just have a little bitty box with a couple lights on it.
1: My understanding is that a2 server and a2 cloud both require the Raspberry Pi, correct
0: Yeah I think when he says that a2 server is a part of a2 cloud says that the idea behind a2 cloud is to provide a couple of virtual hard drives uh, using David Schwenk's BS drive make it easy to get an Apple II or even a 2c on the internet. Uh, and I saw this demonstrated. I think the uh, way you do it is you're able to open up a modem program and and access the command shell from the Raspberry Pi going through the, uh, the terminal window on the, the Apple side. And then you can use the FTP commands or whatever on the Unix side and then turn around and download that using ADT Pro to either a disk or you uh, download that disk image and then tell the AT Cloud stuff to go ahead and switch... Disk drive to over this image that you just downloaded. It even has shrinked, uh disk expansion and other stuff. So it's a pretty exci- exciting collection of uh, tools to to make these things that uh, would otherwise take a long time to do a lot more, a lot more convenient and quick.
1: Uh just to double check something, Brendan, you mentioned David Schmink's VS Drive. Is that David Schmidt's VS Drive? I
0: just I did misspeak, I'm sorry. I, I was I was thinking about something else that David Schmink was demonstrating where he stuck the Raspberry Pi inside the case of the Apple II. And it, it did something very similar. Uh but yeah, you're right. David Schmidt did VS
1: Drive. I made the same mistake this past week. I emailed David Schmidt. I meant to email David Schmink because I just typed it into <laughs> email, let it autocomplete, and they have actually not just similar usernames, but similar domain names as well. I actually do know the difference between them. I just emailed the wrong one.
0: Yeah, and they both do really amazing stuff.
1: They yeah. do. Uh, but I have to confess, that I'm starting to get a little overwhelmed with all the options because there's ADD Pro, there's VS Drive, there's A2 Cloud, there's A2 Server, and then David Schmank, and I do mean Schmank, means uh, he has Apple II Pi, which he's demonstrated in all his YouTube videos. So it just seems like there's a lot of growing ways to have virtual drives and interface with the Raspberry Pi. And I think if I were to get a Raspberry Pi, which I don't have right now, I'm not quite sure where to start.
0: Well, so A2 Cloud has a setup uh YouTube video. It's on the web page, and it uh, looks like it's in three parts. So that definitely would be a good place to go, at least for A2 Cloud. Yeah, otherwise, I think if, if you didn't have a Raspberry Pi and you just wanted to kind of get a proof of concept, then nothing, nothing beats getting ADT Pro and a serial cable on your Mac or whatever and going, going the, I guess now the old fashioned route of having a USB to serial adapter on a PC and, or Mac and, and trying that out and say, okay, well, is this the user experience I want from the Apple or no? And if it is, and you just don't want to have that computer lying around to connect it, then, uh, by all means, you know, throw in a few extra dollars and get a Raspberry Pi and go for A2 Cloud or or one of these other similar projects.
1: I had the interesting experience a couple weeks ago where I was talking to my 11 undergraduate publishing students and I mentioned the Raspberry Pi and they said, what's that? And uh, granted, they're publishing, not computer science students, so it's not necessarily surprising that they wouldn't know this, but the people that I normally talk to -to day-to-day, people like you and Mike and the rest of the Apple II community, I mean, this is just... A fact of life. And even when I briefly was in graduate school for library science, all the librarians there knew about Raspberry Pi because some of them are using as using pies as like uh, library tools and clients for patrons. So the pie just seems like it's everywhere to me and to encounter a whole classroom of people who had never heard of it. I'm like, again, I don't know where to start. How do I tell you what the pie is?
0: You know, I think the easiest way to explain a Raspberry Pi to somebody who's never seen it before is to hold up a cell phone and say, imagine if you had all the technology in this cell phone and I told you this is a computer and say, no way. Yeah, this is a computer, you know. All you need to do is plug it into a monitor, plug it into a keyboard and that's a computer and it goes from there. Cause that's what the Raspberry Pi is, you know. It, it, it uses the same technology that was developed for portable devices and it makes it a reality. I think in a really brilliant way, is a good demonstration of kind of the democratization of uh, technology. Things have become so small and cheap that we can actually go back to having a computer that you can turn on and program like you used to. Which I think is the original goal for the Pi, right? I think it's great.
1: So it's the power of a modern cell phone with the openness of the Apple II.
0: Yeah, that's the plan. I think the only the only trick on there is that the video chip is a slightly proprietary part. And if you want to unlock the full power of it, because it has built-in MPEG decoding, for example, uh, then there's actually like a license key that you have to because it you know keeps the copyright holders happy, I guess. But uh, you have to pay for the license to be able to use the MPEG decoding features built into the chip. Otherwise, you can do software decoding, and it's not as speedy. But that's how people have been able to turn the Raspberry Pi into like a media streamer, for
2: hmm.
1: example. Cool.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure any of my publishing students would be interested even then, though. I'm sure there are people out in the publishing industry who have made the pie relevant to their work. I need to find these people and figure out how to bring that into my classroom.
0: I've seen some, some really uh, fun projects that people have done where they've taken like a Python script, and Python's very easy to jump into, and they've made like an uh, alarm on a kitchen cabinet to... Tell someone that they shouldn't be in the cabinet, you know. And they were just <laughs> demonstrating how how easy it is to interface the I/O pins to something as high level as Python. You know, you don't have to know how to do assembler or C. You can do it from even simpler languages. It's simpler. I think I mean, we're seeing it expand to other things like they have Minecraft on it now and stuff. So,
1: Jeez. Alrighty. Well, while we're all processing that, let's move on to the next topic, which is benchmarked. Uh, A2 Cloud sort of. Sort of straddles the field between hardware and software because it requires the Pi, and it runs on Pi or something. Uh, Benchmarked is also another tool for interfacing with hardware, and in this case it's measuring it. This is the piece of software, it's a 16-bit text-based application from Brutal Deluxe, the French programming group who we've had on this show a couple of times. And this is a benchmarking utility, of which there exist many others for the Apple II, but they are all aging and decrepit and are reflective of their era when floppy disks were the norm. The benchmarked utility, that's a capital B at the beginning and capital D at the end for Brutal Deluxe, is designed to measure the speeds of compact flash and USB thumb drives, not those old SCSI drives that are collecting dust everywhere. So this is a free utility you can download from the Brill Deluxe website and start figuring out just how fast your interfaces are. I have not yet used it. Have any either of you?
0: Can't say I have, but it's Anton and Oliver. I don't think that we have to say any more, right? Great.
1: <laughs> yes, it comes with quite the pedigree. Everything they do is magical. What about you, Mike?
2: I've not had the opportunity to use the the benchmark tool yet, but I'm looking forward to it. My
1: Apple 2GS, actually, since I mentioned I just put the CFFA card in it recently, uh, before that, my primary storage medium was still SCSI hard drives. I'm sure Benchmarked works with that, but I doubt it's designed for it, and so I think I'd be kind of missing the point if I was running Benchmarked on a SCSI drive.
2: Hmm.
1: I guess I need to get with the times. Does it work? Yeah, it does work with SCSI drives. There are some sample test results on the Brutal Deluxe website that includes SCSI. And yeah, I guess I need to get with the times, but you know, so much of what I do with the Apple II doesn't actually require an Apple II, like podcasting, laying out Juice GS, going to Kansas Fest. Uh, it's all sort of like me reporting on other people. So as long as other people are using the Apple II, I kind of don't have to. But I do enjoy my Apple II. I keep it up and running in my office at MIT, and I love having access to it. I love the conversation piece it is for my coworkers. I just bought some more microzines on eBay. This past week that Sean Faye gave me a link to, and he just sent me another link to some more that are up for sale that I might pick up. So I'm still definitely an active consumer in the Apple II industry. I just don't necessarily get to play with it as much as I'd like. One thing I do like doing, though, is bringing my Apple II files onto the Mac. I did a lot of that when my father made the transition. He used an Apple II to run the family business up until '98. And then he got a Macintosh and was running Deja two in it, so he was still using Apple II software up until like two thousand four or five. And there were a lot of AppleWorks files that needed to be converted, and some of them were still converting after all this time. This is Apple Two Works Envoy, and that is from the AppleWorks Maven himself, Hugh Hood, who has written a variety of tutorials about AppleWorks uh Proterm and the like in C S A two. Real nice guy. Not often had the need to Exchange emails with them, but I've always been pleased when I do.
0: The other thing I was seeing recently, and it's not really Apple II, AppleWorks related, but it is related to the the Clarisworks AppleWorks that was on older Mac software versions, and uh, apparently the newer versions of LibreOffice have an AppleWorks importer. Really? Yeah, I haven't tried it, but the screenshots actually show you the before and after. It looks pretty promising if you have some old Clarisworks or AppleWorks files lying around.
1: I think it was another former member of this podcast, another former guest, Lon Sideman, who recently pointed me via Google Plus to a service called Cloud Convert. It is a currently in beta, free, web-based tool. You upload a file to it, and it converts it any which way you like. So not exactly an entirely original uh utility, except that this one has the name Cloud in the title, which means it must be modern. Uh, It supports 148 different formats across audio, video, archive, etc. But again, it doesn't support AppleWorks. And what's the point if it doesn't support (laughs) AppleWorks? I think you said it. I was really disappointed when uh, Dataviz stopped supporting MacLink Plus, which was a staple of the Mac environment for a long time, especially I think it came bundled with AppleWorks and ClarisWorks and allowed you to convert all these different formats amongst each other, and that one did support the Apple II formats from Apple Works. I started writing an article for Juice.js a couple years ago. It took me a year before I finally got it published, and the time between when I started writing the article and when I published it, the article was no longer relevant because it was about MacLink Plus, and they'd stopped selling it. I wish they would release it to public domain or freeware or open source or something because especially now that museums are starting to recognize the value of data preservation, having a means to convert those files, even if it's an unofficial or unsupported means, such as MacLink Plus would be, is valuable. You need to be able to have something to convert these old files.
0: Agreed. Yeah, the preservationalist aspect of it is is a very hard thing to uh, to look past. It's a very important thing.
1: Unfortunately, it's also a hard sell. Just in case I didn't explicitly say what Apple2works Envoy actually is before we went on all those tangents, it is a utility you run once on your Mac and it immediately adds functionality that allows the Finder to identify what is a AppleWorks file and it even when you do a get info window will show you what the file type and ox type are and if it is a word processor file then Spotlight will be able to index the text content of that file and show it to you in your search results, which is all pretty darn cool. And you don't need to grab the files off the original Apple II in a specific way. You don't need to run them through an importer. You just run this utility once, and you're done. Very handy. All right, it looks like we're closing out the news section with a couple of eBay auctions. We don't have an eBay section on the show anymore, but we do like to discuss what we have found that is interesting or unusual or in other words, newsworthy, because this is the new section of the show. So what do we got this month?
2: The First thing that we have is a bunch of items that pr- purport to be movie props from the Jobs movie. You now, unfortunately, the seller doesn't offer any proof at all that that's what they're from. But Sean Fahey over at A2Central.com posted about it, and he's got the... The link, if you want to go right to the seller's listings, uh, it's being sold by Matt Five Star Studios with an underscore between each of those words. Currently listed are an Apple III and a bunch of Apple II Pluses, uh, a couple of Mac Classics, and, and some other early Apple mm, semi-collectible items.
0: It looks like the Apple III is going for far less than the original Apple IIs.
2: That's usually the case, yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all, and I don't... I that it won't get much higher than that, just because there are no cables. There's no proof that this thing is in any kind of working condition, and one of the keys is missing from the keyboard. So, in this case, there's this is going to be a lower end auction for for the three.
1: I wonder if Mike Welegal would have any insight as to the authenticity of these props, since he did supply some of his original Mimeo kits for that movie.
0: I wonder what the wooden incense holder is going to get.
1: <laughs> At the end of the day. that's probably from one of his scenes in india did either of you actually yeah. see the movie you know what um
0: i skipped it because i wasn't really too too big of a fan of how they characterize jobs in it and i just wasn't interested hmm. i mean I, the one thing about the movie i will say that's interesting is that uh, kuchar actually was uh, doing method acting to get into the role of jobs and he actually followed Steve Jobs' diet and he was having a pan- pancreatic attack from eating all the fruit and stuff trying to eat the same food that Jobs ate and I'm wondering very I wonder if that's very sadly related to the ultimate demise of Steve Jobs himself. Uh, it would be very sad if that were the case, but that was an interesting part of the film. Yeah, otherwise other part other parts of the story seem kind of fabricated.
1: Well, as far as his diet and health, we do know for a fact that the time between when Steve Jobs was diagnosed with a cancerous tumor that was operable through surgery, and when he actually decided to undergo that surgery was eight months because he was opposed to such a violation of his body. He wanted to treat it through natural means. And if he had, you know, gone for the surgery immediately, maybe things would have turned out differently. We'll never know. But you're right that, uh, he did lead an interesting diet and other lifestyle choices based on his view of what constituted good health and whether or not he would even need to shower while enjoying these diets. Uh, And then we have one more eBay item that I think Mike would know a lot more about than I would.
2: And finally, we have the Unifile Twiggy Drive. So this is basically an external drive that was made, that was going to be manufactured for the Apple III and the Lisa uh based on the twiggy mechanism which turned out to be highly highly problematic and they they ended up killing it uh the, the twiggy drive mechanisms were used in the original Lisa 1s and then discontinued when they switched over to the Sony 800k drives for the Lisa 2 so there are a few manufacturing samples and prototypes out there and this is one of them they did uh, they got so close to releasing it apparently that and, and we know this because they actually released the controller cards called the Unifile controller cards for the Apple III in fairly large numbers. They're, they're not crazy common, but not much for the Apple III is, but you can find them out there. So, uh, it looks like it was a last minute decision based on how flaky the tri- Twiggy drives were not to release it. Actually seeing one of these drives, uh, is, is highly unusual.
0: I'm just noticing on the back of the drive, there's serial. It says serial number one hundred eight written in Sharpie. But then, on a sticker, that's actually a, a disc, an old disc label sticker that's on the bottom of the drive, and also on the internal component, the actual uh, serial number of the drive component on the inside is a uh, serial number eighty nine fourteen, and I guess that's just for the internal mechanism.
2: Currently, there's a starting bid of thirty-seven hundred fifty dollars. There aren't any bids at all, but you can buy it right now for a cool six grand.
0: This would be a great investment to read disks that I don't um
2: Well, yeah, and it doesn't use a standard uh, five and a quarter inch floppy disk. You, you can't. Uh, you had to have the special Twiggy floppy drives. that was not. Yeah, they it, were notched differently, so they wouldn't fit in the regular drive.
0: Yeah, yeah. and it, and, they have, and they have the two windows on it, right? So. Yep. If you did try to, uh, even even if you were successful at putting an old five-and-a-quarter floppy in there, you would mess up one of the reed heads because it would be scratching itself against the uh, plastic surface, right?
2: So I think that pretty much brings us not only to the end of the news items, but the end of this month's show. Yay! Do you have anything to add? (laughs) I guess Ken does not have anything else to add. Uh, Brendan, any parting words?
0: Uh, no, you know, if anybody wants to, to join up with us on The Wallace Legends, or just pick our brains, you know we have a Facebook page set up and reach out to us. We're always looking for more people to
2: hop on board. Great. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. See you around. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at
0: www.open-apple.net.
1: I'm going to become rich and famous when I come up with a device that allows people to stab each other in the face over the internet.